This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Maybe seated. Grab a Bible. And if it's a sanctuary Bible, you can open to page 944. Um, if it's your own Bible, then join us in Romans 8 as we continue our summer series, um, concluding next week, I believe. Right? Okay. So we're not going to make it all the way to the end of Romans, but we will make it to the end of Romans 8. The most important truth about God is also one of the most widely doubted, that God cares about you. Most people, and even many folks here in this sanctuary, go about their days frustrated at life and wondering if God really hears their prayers or cares about them. Few people live lives so filled with joy that they're consistently aware of God's love and presence in their life. And that is why it is critical that you and I turn often to passages like Romans chapter 8, where the foundational truths about God are majestically, poetically, and powerfully proclaimed. We must hear them again and again that we might find ourselves once more standing on solid rock, steadfast in the midst of the storm. Romans 8, verses 18 to 39, the second half of the chapter, and indeed, really, the whole chapter of Romans 8 could be summed up in these words. God is on your side and nothing can keep you from his love. God is for you, and nothing can stand between you and the love that God has for you. That's the essence of the message of Romans 8. Now, last week, Father Matt preached from verses 18 to 25, where the theme was the hope that is given to us through the promise of a new creation. Paul was talking about suffering, and he says, what gets us through the sufferings of this life? Well, the knowledge that these sufferings will end for good. At some point, they will give way as the old order of things gives birth to a new creation. So our future is secured, and now we can wait with eager hope as we anticipate that glorious new thing. But what about those times before that new creation begins when you feel weak and confused because you don't know what God is doing now in your life? You don't know what he's up to. In our waiting for this future hope, are we no better than someone marooned on a desert island? Sure, we've been given a promise that we will be rescued, but until then, we're just stuck here on this desert island. Is, is that what life then is like? Paul says, no. Let's read verses 26 and 27. Likewise, so he's connecting this to what he had just written in the previous sentence where he's talking about the hope that we have from the new creation. He says, likewise, additionally, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit 
because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So Paul is saying the Spirit doesn't just give us hope for the future, but help for today. And when Paul says, when you do not know what to pray for, I think this is about more than just prayer and not knowing how to pray. The solution isn't, well, you need better prayers. He's talking about those moments in life, those situations. He's referring to those times when we're baffled by what God is or is not doing. So baffled that we don't even know how to ask him for help. We can't even pray. That's what Paul's talking about. Not just, well, we need to get better at praying. He's saying those moments where we're baffled, God, what are you up to? I, I can't even pray. I don't even know what to ask you for. I don't even know to, how to articulate my need or my hope for what you'll do. That's what Paul is talking about. And in moments like that, we don't just want a future of hope. We want help, too. Again, hope for what is to come enables people to endure. It keeps them from giving up. And that, of course, is essential. Hope strengthens the will, but help strengthens the hand. Hope comes down to us from the future, reaching out from our desired destination, drawing us on toward the goal. But the fact remains that hope is based on a future reality, not a present one. To have the future taken care of is indeed a relief, a great gift. But I still have the tasks of today that need tending. And hope might motivate me to keep at it, but hope won't do the work for me. So wouldn't it be nice if, along with hope for the future, we also had help for today? And Paul is saying, that's exactly what you've got. In the Spirit, that is what you have. Read again the very first part of verse 26 with me. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. So imagine this scenario. You're in college, maybe a sophomore, and so far you've been studious and and doing well. You're studying engineering. And then one day you get a knock on the door, and a great uncle, whom you've met only once in your life, is there on campus to pay you a visit, and you're surprised. But more so are you surprised when you find out that he's telling you, I don't have any kids, but I do have a lot of money. I'm going to pay for all of your education. You'll have no debts when you graduate. And if you do a good job and stay reasonably attentive to your studies, I also have a job for you. Because he's a, let's just say he's the owner of an engineering firm, and so he's got a job waiting ready there for you, okay? So no debt. School is paid, job waiting for you, amazing. How would you feel the rest of your college career? My hope is there because my future is secured. Comes in handy when you're cramming for a midterm and that's hard work. You want to give up, you want to blow the test and go with your friends down to the city. But your uncle's promise comes back to you and it keeps you rooted in your studies. That's the power of hope. That's the power of of a future secured. But Paul is saying, there's more. Because again, the reality is, as great as a secured future is, the work still has to be done. That midterm is not going to study itself. 
So again, wouldn't it be nice if along with a hope in a secure future, we also had help for today? So then comes another knock on the door. It's your great uncle again. And he says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to stop by every Tuesday and Thursday evening, and I'm going to tutor you. Bring to me all the hardest questions, the things you don't understand. I'll help you work through it. Because again, recall, he's, he's a brilliant engineer, the, the best. He owns his own firm. He can really help you with this. So now you truly have everything you need, not only hope because the future is secured, but help with the work of today. And our God is so much greater than a great uncle that you've only met once in your life. All throughout the scriptures, he's constantly inviting. His invitation to us from himself is, call on me. I want you to ask me for help. And if you don't know what to say, at the very least, just call on my name. Call on the name of the Lord. And I'll look to the middle of verse 26. For we do not know what to pray for. And when that happens, it's okay because... The Spirit himself intercedes for us, that's praying on our behalf, interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. Groanings that express what words cannot. Just this last Thursday night, I, I ate a piece of probably the best apple pie that not only I've ever eaten but has ever been made in the history of the world. <laughs> I took a bite and I said, mmm, <laughs> I could have said that was tasty, but that wouldn't have quite captured it. Instead, it was groanings too deep for words. <laughs> These groanings that Paul speaks of, we might ask the question, are they our groanings, or is this the Spirit groaning? Well, the wording makes it look like, well, this is the Spirit groaning on our behalf. But one commentator does say, no, these are our groans, which the Spirit then takes and incorporates into his perfect prayer to the Father. Verse 23, which was preached on last week, already makes it clear that we do have our own groanings. But even if it's true that verse 26 here does refer primarily to the Spirit's groanings, still it is clear we are not passive. Paul says that all of this is happening because we're at a point in our prayers where we don't know how to pray or what to ask for. Well, that means that we have just been trying. We're praying. We're engaged. We're pleading. And that's when the Spirit prays for us his perfect petitions. Don't take this to mean, oh, great, well, I don't have to do anything. The Spirit's going to do it all for me. The promise of the praying advocate is for those who in their desperate weakness are crying out to God, and they just simply come to the end of words. That's when the Spirit takes your weak prayers and your weak longings and makes them perfect before the Father in heaven. So this is not an excuse or a free ticket to do nothing. Again, the promise of the praying advocate, the one who's interceding on your behalf, is for those who are desperately crying out to God. So make prayer a part of your life. 
at the beginning of this new school year and you're rethinking what are my daily, what are my weekly rhythms, what are my family rhythms, make prayer a priority. Make it part of your life. Choose rhythms and routines that allow for undistracted time with God. Carve out that space to be alone with Him. And I love that there are podcasts and there are pray-as-you-go and there's things that you can do while you cook dinner. Make some time. And if you're busy, maybe it's precious few small moments, but make some time that is quiet, undistracted, just you and the Word of God and you and the Spirit of God. You've got to have that. And in those moments, periodically throughout this coming year, when you come to those times where out of desperation and weakness, you don't know how to pray, but you're trying, those will be your most powerful prayers of all. Now, verse 27 is a little confusing in its wording. It says, He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Who's the he? What's going on here? Well, this is the sense of it. This is God the Father is the he. He's the one who searches hearts. The Father knows our hearts because the Father knows all the hearts and thoughts of everyone all the time. And he also knows the mind of the Spirit because he's in constant communion with the Spirit. The Spirit, for his part, always prays perfectly because he understands and loves the will of the Father. The Spirit perfectly knows the Father's will. And like Jesus, whose sole delight was to do the Father's will, the Spirit's sole delight is to pray and intercede according to the Father's will. Now, Paul ends verse 27 talking about the will of God and so then this transitions him back in his thought. Now he comes back to talking about God's plan, God's purpose, and that future hope. When you're confused because you don't know what God is up to at this current moment in your life, Paul wants you to once again look up at the big picture, locate the present difficulty in the broader scheme of things, and remember that God is on your side and that nothing can come between you and His love for you. Moreover, the Spirit is guiding your life according to God's plan and purpose toward a perfect end. And so, because this is true, Paul says in one of the most treasured verses in all of the Scriptures, look to verse 28. He says, remember what we already know. Remember that we know that all things are working together for good. For those who love God and are following Him, all that happens, and that leaves nothing outside its scope. Everything that is happening in your life and around you and in the world, all things are working together for good. How is that possible? That's an entire other sermon, except just to know that God is able to take even evil and turn it for good. Remember Joseph's story. Think of the cross of Jesus Christ. The greatest evil ever done in history is also the greatest good that has ever been done in history. That's God taking evil and making it good. 
He's also just incredibly creative. His, his providence, his sovereignty overwhelms us when we think, how is it that you weave together the stories of all people, the things that, that we all do, the way we interact? It's just mind-blowing. And yet he is doing all the time, working in everything, this plot toward a specific, definite end. And Paul says that end is a good one. All things work together for good. If you love God and follow him, it will be well with you in the end. And now Paul is back to the familiar theme from earlier in the chapter of this future hope. We've talked about the present help of the Spirit. Now he's back to talking again of the, the future hope of a good ending. And what is that end? Let's look at verse 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, that is Jesus, the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We can read brothers and sisters. Firstborn of a mighty family. Now, at the beginning of verse 29, we encounter two words, foreknew and predestined. These are operating as synonyms. They're, they're side by side. They're similar, pointing us to some, the same basic idea. The word foreknew literally means to know beforehand. Okay, well, that makes sense. You know something ahead of time. Except that the word know is not how we think of it, of I know something, or I know about something, or I know what's going to happen. It's the knowing in that Hebraic relational sense of I know you. So it's not that God knows what's going to happen ahead of time. It's I knew you already before you ever met me. I already knew you. That's what it means that he foreknew. To predestine means to decide beforehand. So again, God, in his agency before the creation of the world, made some decisions. He decided that you would be a part of his family. So these words, foreknew and predestined, through them God is saying, I've already known you from before you were born. And I've already chosen you from before the founding of the world. I know it's hard. I know it's hard sometimes to believe God is working all things for good. That's why we have to hold on to words like foreknew and predestined, words we don't use every day in our common language because we have to remember beyond and outside of this current trial, God knew me before I existed. He chose me before the world began. It's a lot harder to doubt and to question God's love for you when you really believe that, and I really do. I've already known you. I've already chosen you. Chosen you for what? Now look at the middle of verse 29. To be conformed to the image of the Son of God. 
What are you chosen for? To become like Jesus. And not just like, as in close. You're, you're, you're close. The Bible says we will be just like him, perfectly like Jesus. The Bible says that we were made in the image of God, but through sin and the fall, that image was so grossly distorted as to be unrecognizable, almost. But that distorted image can be conformed, reshaped, and rescued to be exactly what it was originally meant to be. And that's the goal of the Christian life, to become like Jesus. And why is this? Well, this is interesting. So that Jesus would not be alone. Look at the end of verse 29. All of this is so that, in order that, he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers, so that he would not be alone. Where have we heard that before? It is not good for the man to be alone. Well, we heard that in Genesis chapter 2 in the beginning when God created Adam, but at first it was Adam only, and God said, this is not good. It's not right that Adam should be alone. And so God created for Adam a wife, a companion perfectly suited for him. And so here, in a parallel way, we have Jesus, the second Adam, who alone of all humanity has come through death and is standing now sinless and deathless, perfect, now already living in the new creation, but he's there all alone as a human being. Of course, not alone in the Trinity, but as a human being, it's just him. And God is saying, that's not right. It's not good that he should remain all alone in that perfection and that glory and that majesty. He needs a bride. He needs the church. He needs his people. So he will be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This is so that Jesus is not alone in his perfect beauty and glory. So understand this. What this means is that God's plan and his purpose for you, the, the all things working together towards what end, is that you are being made perfect, complete, whole, healed, not just perfect as in without mistakes, but completely healed. When we think of getting to heaven, we often focus on, oh, it'll be great to be done with the suffering and the sorrow and leave that all behind. Like the Negro spiritual, sooner we'll be done with the troubles of the world. I think our choir has sung that one before. And that's right to be excited about I'll be done with the thorns and the thistles, and the curse will be no more. But there's more. Paul's saying it's not just what will be gone, but it's also think about what will be. This promise that we will be made just like Jesus. So imagine that you are building a house, but in the meantime, you're, you're living in a tent. And as you are building the house, there are headaches, decisions that need to be made, things that aren't going according to plan, things that are taking longer than you budgeted for. There are injuries and the soreness and the weariness of the body. And so you look forward to the house being done because you're ready to be done with all of that difficulty. Sure. But isn't there something else when you're building a house? 
You're looking forward to the house being done because you're going to have a house to live in. It's not just that you'll never smash your thumb with a hammer again. It's that you'll have a bedroom with a comfortable bed that you can lie in, a kitchen to prepare your food in. It's that there will be a living room with a fireplace that you can sit by and enjoy. So think not just about what you're leaving behind, but what God is making you into. Think about Jesus as you know him from the Gospels, his perfect love, his power, his wisdom, his tenderness, his gentleness. You read Jesus in the Gospels, and it should astound you to think, and I'm going to be exactly like that one day. Of all those things I, I think about and get excited that one day I will love finally as Jesus loves. Because in this life, so much gets in the way of my ability to love. I'm often frustrated with the very people I'm supposed to love. Or I'm tired, I'm, I'm hungry, I'm distracted by the duties in front of me. Or my selfishness and my self-centeredness just gets the upper hand for a day. And I love myself instead of others. Is it the same for you? And can you imagine what it'll be like to be complete, done, finished, and loving as Jesus loved with the abundant, free, lavish love of Jesus. You won't have to work to love. It will flow naturally, affection, tenderness, that infinite care. You'll look upon another, even one who in this life frustrated you, sinned against you, brought you injury and insult. You'll look upon them, and you'll love them, and it won't be hard. And when I think about that, I can get excited not just for what I'm leaving behind, but for all that is to come. Finally, in verse 30, Paul just does a brief recap of the whole plan and purpose of God for your life. And he says four things. You've been predestined. Those who've been predestined are called. Those who are called are justified, and those justified are glorified. And you might wonder, why does he use glorified in the past tense? That hasn't happened yet. And this is the Hebrew prophetic past, this idea that when God says something's going to happen, even if the thing has not yet happened, you can speak about it as if it has, because God said it will be. So it's as good as done. You can use the past tense. If we were to throw these four things into more contemporary language, here's the summary of what Paul is saying. You've been chosen. You've been summoned. You've been saved. And you will be made perfect. So God is on your side. Nothing can keep you from his love. And he gives you not just hope for the future, but help for today because the Spirit of God perfectly prays for you. Moreover, the Spirit is always leading you on towards the wonderful goal of being perfectly like Jesus, complete, whole, done. So even when you don't know what God is up to or you can't see his purpose in the midst of your difficulty, know and believe like we sing in that song, even when you don't see it, he's working. Even when you don't feel it, he's working. He never stops. And he's working all things together for your good.
And that's just one more reason why we can say, He is good. Amen.